I found myself in this situation where I didn't quite know what to do. And it was a situation where there was this conflict with a colleague, and it was the first time I got hurt really deeply. Like it cut deep what this person did to me. And I didn't know really what to say, what to do. There was no clarity in the situation. So I just kind of left it alone. Things were said that brought about some sort of reconciliation and I just left it. And it was a January, like it is now. I went on vacation, but throughout this whole vacation, even though we were far away from this place, I couldn't stop thinking about it. It was like nagging me the whole time and I couldn't just get these thoughts or these feelings out of my system. No matter how hard I prayed, God, like just take this pain away, this pain that was inflicted on me that had nothing to do with me really in some sense. Just take this away from me. But he didn't answer me. And it all led to this moment that I wrestled with God and I just knew that he was leading me in my heart of hearts to just forgive this person to just forgive them on the spot in that moment. And I was asking myself this question, like, as I was wrestling with God, like, how do I forgive them? They haven't even apologized for what they have done. Like, I'm not even sure if they think what they've done is wrong. So how do I forgive them in this moment, God? And here's the thing about that story for me. It brings about this problem that all of us as humans face when it comes to the act of forgiveness, right? Forgiveness is an easy concept to grasp, but a hard concept to act out on, to put into practice. Why is it so hard, though? Why is forgiveness so hard? See, this is the tension that our world deals with and see if you're a Christian or not in this place, no matter who you are, there's going to be a time in your life that you either wrong somebody or somebody wrongs you, right? It's like all of us in this place. We've probably cut somebody off on the road and probably been cut off ourselves on the road, right? Same thing with forgiveness, There's going to be a point in our life that we're probably going to have to grant forgiveness. And at the same time, a point in our life that we're probably going to have to receive forgiveness from someone. So why is this so hard? I think this quote by a character in this book called The Crawdad Sings, her name is Delilah Owens, just encapsulates this inner tension, okay? She says this, Why should the injured, the still bleeding, bear the onus of forgiveness. When having to forgive someone, that's what it feels like, right? That you're bearing the brunt of the situation, the wrong that has been done to you, everything in that moment, you're the one that's having to walk through it. You're the one that's having to bear that burden, right? And they get scot- they get off scot- scot-free. This struggle we all face And to us, it's as if there's a contradiction taking place between forgiveness and justice. Our culture knowing this, our culture trying to solve the problem, it offers us models of forgiveness, models or solutions of ways of going about this, knowing that we all are going to wrong someone or be wrong ourselves. 
And these raw, raw, these models come out in so many different ways. These models come out or at the heart of um, different movements like, you know, Me Too or cancel culture is really the tension of what I'm talking about and solutions being offered. Tim Keller in his book on forgiveness, he, he kind of sums this up. And so to save time, I just borrowed from him. It'll be on the screen. But he sums up these three models that culture gives us, okay? Here they are. First model is called cheap grace. It's this, the non-conditional forgiveness model in in which all the emphasis is on the victim being therapeutically liberated from anger. Confrontation with the perpetrator may be involved, but only if and to the degree if it helps with the victim's inner healing, which is the only real concern. That's the first model. Here's the second one, little grace, the transactional forgiveness model, he calls it, in which all the emphasis is on the perpetrator meriting forgiveness, meaning earning it, atoning for his sins, if you will. The victim gives up anger only if the wrongdoer earns it through extensive acts of repentance and reparation. Here's a third model, no grace. This is where it goes really south. The no forgiveness model in which forgiveness is abandoned completely in favor of the pursuit of justice for the victim. To me, the last one's the most disturbing. Because just think about it for a second. Really what it is proposing to us is that we get rid of forgiveness altogether. But what does that leave us with? It just leaves us with a society that's in this constant cycle of revenge, of retribution, And this makes sense if you really think about it. If you really think about our culture and how our culture is shaped by modern therapy, and what I mean by that is counseling is great. Don't get me wrong, I've gone to counseling myself. Nothing wrong with it. I think it's a great way to, to learn more about yourself. But when not filtered through a Christian worldview, when devoid of a Christian worldview, It's designed to defend individuals against any community or outward influence that foisted guilt-producing standards on them. Freud took an analytical approach, one of deconstruction of any moral norms or beliefs that created anxiety or shame. Individual authenticity came to mean liberation from any norms that you do not choose or create yourself. Hence, you can see how these models started to come about. And here's the underlying belief when it comes to forgiveness in our culture. This illustration, this example tells it all. A professor of psychology at one university was enlisted to train others in this university to counsel students in this what they called forgiveness therapy. But when a higher up in the university heard about this plan that the professor came in to do with students, They denied him permission to do this whatsoever. Forgiveness, it victimizes, the professor was told. Then came the explanation from the higher-ups. When people are treated cruelly by others and you come along and tell them they must forgive, you have introduced a new hurt into an already hurting heart. And it might not uh, and might not an effort to forgive someone go along with that person's attempt to control you. In your process of forgiveness, you may say, well, 
he's not such a bad person or they're not such a bad person. Maybe what he did or she did wasn't so bad after all. And so the conclusion, forgiveness becomes a way that people with abusive power maintain their power. But this is the thing. These models, they don't work. These models don't work whatsoever. If you look through all of them, they don't actually bring about a solution. They actually create more tension. The cheap grace model of forgiveness focuses strictly on inner emotional healing for the victim uh, or uh, getting past it and moving on, but then it ends up letting the perpetrator off the hook. There's no justice. The little grace and the no grace model basically seeks revenge, which can lead to endless cycles of retaliation and vengeance back and forth between the victim and the wrongdoer. So again, they don't work. So here's the question. Is there a model out there that does work? Is there a model out there that brings about justice and forgiveness at the same time? Things to us that seem super contradictory, right? Well, I think in our passage this morning, there's a model offered to us. So let's set the scene. Mark writes, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them, which simply means he was preaching the gospel to them. The message that he came to say that the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered that mat the man was lying on. So in the last episode of Mark, Jesus goes away to a lonely place because of all the crowds that are forming because he healed this man of leprosy. Now he's back in town in Capernaum. Some scholars say that like this is Peter's house that he's hanging out in. Some scholars say it's actually Jesus' own house. Really, it doesn't matter. The scene is a packed house of people pushing in the doors, peering through the windows just to hear Jesus' preaching, just to hear his message. But as he's sermonizing, all of a sudden, pieces of mud start falling from the sky, pieces of dirt, and everything else that's mixed in to make these houses back in that day. Can you imagine that scene? You know, it's easy to like brush past it when we read these stories, but imagine being there. Like Jesus is sermonizing and all of a sudden, like something starts coming through the roof. I don't know if you ever experienced that at your house. Like the closest that we've got, Eric Magnuson actually knows is like these squirrels. Just recently, they were living in our attic until Eric came and got rid of them for us. (laughs) And at one point, they decided to start burrowing through the drywall trying to get into the house in my parents' bathroom. And it was like this little hole, like maybe like bigger than a toonie, but it was like a mess in the bathroom when I went in there. Like there was drywall everywhere. So then imagine now this, like this is a hole big enough for a human being to fit in, okay? These men are digging this hole in the roof, the ceiling, in order to get their friend to Jesus to be healed. And they lower him down, this paralyzed man on a mat. And here's the startling point. It's not the digging of the roof 
but it's what Jesus does. If it's what Jesus says in this moment, it's the words of Jesus that would have jolted the crowd and that should jolt us in this moment. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. I'm going to read that again. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. You know, so many times I've heard this passage preached before. Maybe you have too. And a lot of the times, you know, the preacher will get up here and he will just emphasize the faith of the four friends, which isn't a wrong thing to do. Don't get me wrong, okay? But it's the amazing faith that these four friends had that they knew that Jesus was the healer. And if they just got hit their friend to Jesus, he would be healed, right? And the application goes that we should have the similar faith that we should be bringing our friends to Jesus, right? For restoration and redemption and healing and all that, which is great. But what struck me this time around was this line, son, your sins are forgiven. Son, your sins are forgiven. Put yourself in the shoes of the paralyzed man, right? He's expecting healing. Jesus looks at him and says, son, your sins are forgiven. And I know I'm adding to the text here, but I couldn't help but think he's like, well, um, actually, Jesus, I came to walk. So can you, like, please, like, just heal my legs? Like, pray for my legs. Like, forgiveness, that's great. Thank you. I don't know what to say, but. If you could just pray for my legs, that'd be great, right? And the interesting thing about it is, even if it's not in the text, I think there's something that it reveals to us about all human beings. I think we can all get caught up in thinking accidentally that we really need something and totally disregard or not realize that we have a deeper need at play, right? I know for myself, I probably have said something like this, like this, this paralyzed man, he's probably thinking like, you know, God, if I could just walk, you know, if I could walk, if you healed my legs and I could walk, I knew I would be content and happy, right? I know for me, it's like, oh, hey, God, if you got me this job or if I had this type of ministry or you fill in the blank with whatever it is that you prayed for or thought of, which isn't a wrong thing or not a bad thing. I'm telling you, I've had those same thoughts, right? And the conclusion is like, if I got that thing, I'd be happy. I'd be content for sure, right? Could it be in this moment, Jesus is looking at him and looking at the crowd around him and thinking like, hey, all these people around you can walk, but they don't seem to be any happier or more content than you are in this moment. See, the thing that I love about Jesus is that he's looking beyond the temporal need and seeing the eternal need of this man in this place. The man that is lying before him paralyzed. And he looks around and he thinks for a moment. He sees the faith of his friends. 
and says, son, your sins are forgiven. See, forgiveness, Jesus knows, gets down to the bottom of things. The alienation we feel from God and from ourselves because of our wrongdoing. Jesus was saying, I want to show you the deepest need of your nature is me. Only I can bestow perfect love, new identity, endless comfort, hope, glory. And the doorway into all of that is to know forgiveness. This is the deeper healing we need. We all need as human beings. And see, this is heal- like the idea of healing is this, right? It's the restoration of the body. So think about it this way, okay? What Jesus is doing in this moment is a deeper restoration. He knows that this healing is only temporal, as I said, and one day this man is going to die, even if he can walk. But this is eternal healing that is taking place in this moment, a holistic healing, if you will, that gets to the root of all disease, all sickness, all evil in this world, sin. And Jesus knew that. And he wanted this man to experience this eternal healing that led to eternal life, entering back into a relationship with the God of the universe. But I'm sure in this moment, as we read this text, this man was confused. The crowd was confused. Some of them were irked, right? And it doesn't tell us why, but there was a group here that I thought was just really interesting that Mark highlighted. And it says in verse six, now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone, right? The remark of forgiving sins got Jesus into trouble with these guys, this theologians of the day, the scribes, right? And a lot of the times, you know, I think we see them as bad people. But in this moment, they're just good scribes. They're good teachers of the law. They're just good Jewish men that understand that they believe, according to the Shema, that God is one. There's only one God. So Jesus claiming to be God with this statement goes against the root of their belief in this moment. And as priests, as like, you know, protectors of the law, Theologically, they're just coming to the conclusion that this guy can't possibly be God because there's only one God. And when you think about it that way, you understand their reaction. But the sad thing about it is they're missing what Jesus is saying in this moment. They're missing the message of what God was coming and revealing to them by saying, son, your sins are forgiven. In the tension of the scene, Jesus is doing something. He's showing that the kingdom of God has come. It's near. It's closer than you think. And in verse 8, he knows their private thoughts. It says, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking and in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven or just say, get up, take your mat and walk. Jesus through the Holy Spirit, which we just saw a couple scenes ago that he got baptized and the Holy Spirit comes and rests on him in fullness. Through that spirit, he senses what they are thinking in that moment. 
He senses their questions, that they're questioning him. Who is this fellow that claims to be able to forgive sins? And it's a gripping question, is it? Isn't it, right? Which is easier? Which is easier, to say to this man, your sins are forgiven, or get up and take up your mat and walk, right? And logic would, would take you this way. This is where my brain went. What's easier? It's easier to probably say your sins are forgiven because that's an eternal thing that's happening in that person. Therefore, if it happened or not, no one could look at objective evidence to say that you were wrong or it actually wasn't happening, right? Versus the opposite, the healing, get up your mat and walk. Like if he didn't get up, this is a paralyzed man, and walk in that moment, everybody around him would be like, oh, that's a false teacher. He's not who he says he is. Let's stone him. Or put it another way, flip it. This is how my brain works. Instead of which is easier, which is harder? Think about that question. What's harder to do? Say to this man, your sins are forgiven? Or to, to heal him and say, get up and walk. See, this is where logic can steer us the wrong way. Because I want to answer that question by saying, oh, it's healing the man. That's the harder thing, logically. But this is where the question about forgiveness and why it's so hard comes into play. See, why forgiveness is so hard, why Jesus is speaking like this. He's pointing to something. He's revealing something. He's answering this question for us. Why forgiveness is so hard? Because see, forgiveness at the core of what it is, and Jesus knows this forgiveness means the cost of the wrong moves from the perpetrator to you. You bear it, as I said in that earlier quote. Forgiveness then is a form of voluntary suffering. In forgiving rather than retaliating, you make the choice to bear the cost. Jesus, throughout this scene, he is pointing in ways we can't at times even comprehend to what he's about to do. He's revealing little morsels for this crowd then and for us now as we read this text of what he came to do. Even when he says to this man, get up and take your mat and walk. In the original language, it's this, this idea of being raised. He's pointing to his resurrection. He's pointing to his death. Jesus is saying without saying that I've come to bear to my, on myself the cost of all the sins of the world. I've come to bear the cost. Hence, son, your sins are forgiven. He came to bore all our mistakes on the cross once and for all. He came to conquer death once and for all in the grave when he was lowered down, when he was buried. But he rose to life. As I said, sickness, disease, and death are the consequence of the sinful condition of all of us. And consequently, every healing is a driving back of death 
and an evasion of sin. This is why it's appropriate for Jesus to proclaim in this scene the remission of sins. But listen, it gets better. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. Oh, but this caught me off guard. And I'm going to try to keep it together because it really hit me in my devotional time in a really powerful way. But did you notice something? The man never confessed his sin. He never asked for forgiveness. He never repented. And the question that I asked myself is, is Mark and Jesus contradicting the Bible? Like I can name many passages that say that we need to confess our sin. We need to repent our sin. And therefore he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. But in this moment, what's happening? What's happening in this moment? (laughs) Jesus is revealing to us the character of God. The heart of God. I think it's reasonable to discern by looking at this passage that chapter 2, verse 8 is a telling sign. Jesus being able to, you know, discern the thoughts of these scribes that are questioning him. One theologian says, could it be that he discerned in this moment the small inkling in this man's heart, a desire that wasn't expressed verbally, that he desired forgiveness, that he desired to confess his sin, that he desired what Jesus was offering, but he he just didn't know about it. He didn't have the knowledge. He didn't have the wherewithal to ask because he didn't know what he needed in that moment. But God, being so good, so merciful, right, gave him what he deeply needed, even though he didn't know he needed it. Is that the heart of a father? For those of you who have kids, sometimes you know what your kid needs, even though they don't know what to ask for, right? Even though they don't ask, you still give them what you need, right? Isn't this picture of Jesus in this scene just uh, uh, somewhat of a reflection of what uh, this parable he's going to tell later of the lost son, right? That squanders away his inheritance. And while he's a far way off, the father goes running to him. And before he can even repent, before he can even apologize, the father wraps his arms around him in total acceptance. See, everything that we receive from God is a free gift. Faith is a free gift. His love is a free gift. Forgiveness is a free gift. That's what enables us to come into a relationship with God. And this is what I believe the text is saying to us this morning. No matter where you're at, If you know your need or not, 
if you're close to God or far from him, if you don't even know what you're doing here this morning, he's waiting here with open arms. He's ready to offer you forgiveness, even if you're not ready. He's ready to free you from whatever burden it is that you walked in here with. Knowing that root, the root of that burden is probably sin. Sin that you've done or sin that's been done to you. See, we need to understand that we cannot forgive until we ourselves have experienced divine forgiveness. See, because forgiveness will cost you something. But when you realize that it costs God everything, it makes it possible for you to supernaturally offer forgiveness when need be. So this is what I want to do. I just want to pray for us this morning. And there might be a couple ways that we respond in a prayer ministry if you're not used to um, that language is simply coming up and getting prayer for specific things. So I'm going to invite the band up. And what we're going to do in this moment is we're simply going to pray and just wait in stillness and in quiet.